0: Hi, this is Kenny Albert. In my spare time, I always enjoy listening to Baseball and Barbecue with Jeff and Len.
1: from the studios of baseball and bbq this is episode number 210 of baseball and barbecue i'm jeff the Oak cohen along with leonard hollywood edmund welcome you back to our show leonard
2: hello jeff hello audience it is so good to be here for episode 210 i i'm too mellow though i gotta up the energy because <laughs> we've got guests two guests Jeff, that were filled with energy. Yes, actually two guests and a guest co-host. Oh, always like those yeah. guest co-hosts. Yeah, we we do. And so guest number one, we've got Robin lindars of a Grill Girl and joining us with Robin is our longest running guest co-host. Doug, he's gone rogue shining and guest number two is talking about it's scott kingdon who wrote a book on one of my favorite one of my favorite players one of the greatest yeah tony gwynn tony gwynn what just you never heard anything bad about him mr padre great great player and we got to see basically his whole career so that was yeah Nice. One of the greatest. So before, and I know you've got some special stuff. We we've got a lot going on, but before we get to all of the good stuff, let me tell everybody one other good thing. The last of the major pro sports leagues is off and rolling, and college basketball is ready to go as well. Bet online remains your top spot for all your live betting action and contests. NFL, college football, UFC, and NHL are all in full swing. Bet Online is your number one source for wagering news, odds, trends, and predictions. All the hoops betting action, along with every sport available at your fingertips with both desktop and mobile access at any time. Head to the Bet Online today. And remember to use our promo code Believe. That's B L E A V for your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online, it is where the game starts. And,
1: Land, speaking of starting, we do have a little sad news today. Full disclosure, we're recording this on Monday, October 30th. And just a little while ago, we found out. That the great Frank Howard had passed away. He was a gentle giant. Yeah, yeah. He was six, 87 years old. You know, he was a coach for the New York Mets when I was there as a intern. And I uh-huh. remember, I remember seeing him in the clubhouse. This big six foot eight, giant of a man, <laughs> sitting at a, at a bridge table playing solitaire in his jockstrap. It was quite the sight to see <laughs> but frank howard was the nicest one of the nicest people i ever met who played the game and he
2: will be missed did he manage the mets
1: right for for a little while as an interim manager he right. was uh the rookie of the year he was a four-time all-star and he was he was on the winning team on a 19 on the 1963 dodgers winning the world series He had MVP votes, so he was a a terrific, terrific player. He's also known very well in Washington because he did play for the then Washington Senators, and and the Washington Nationals have honored him in their ring of honor.
2: Yeah, 87 years old. Another guy who, you know, I don't remember hearing anything bad about him, but like I said, Tony Gwynn was someone, you know, there's, there's, there's very few people that go their whole career Good things about them and i i mean i didn't know much about him um his whole career but uh, i certainly knew when he was uh Mets manager anyway it's yeah it's sad so we send our condolences to uh his family and to all all of his fans jeff i know that we're gonna have uh robin lindars yes. and we're we're going to have uh doug with us And uh, just want to tell everyone, stay tuned because Jeff has something for you. After Robin Lindar's, you're not going to want to miss it. So here we go with Robin Lindar's Grill Girl. Our guest has taken her love and skills at Outdoor Live Fire Cooking and has created a brand that embodies all that's good about barbecue. I could go down. There's a list, a long list. I mean, the research... I saw a a magazine that's hers. I I she has an incredible website. We're going to get all into that. She was born in Mississippi. She loves fried pickles and that's just that's just a little bit about this terrific person. Oh, and wow. that my friends is Robin Lindars. She is of Grill Girl and joining us with Robin as we just said to Robin when we have a big Barbecue personality on. We need to call in our heavy hitter. And that is our longest running guest (laughs) co-host, Doug. He's gone rogue. Cookers shining. So, Robin, we welcome you to baseball and barbecue.
3: Oh, well, thank you for having me. Thank you for the very flattering intro. And I can't even believe you figured found all that information out about me because most people have no idea I was born in Mississippi. Cause I don't have much of a, a Southern accent and I'm married to a guy from New Jersey who knew, and I do love fried pickles. That, that is like my language of love. So yeah. So thanks for having me. And yes, I can talk about grilling all night long. So I hope you made yourself a, a strong drink.
2: <laughs> oh, we love it. And, and with being that we are baseball and BBQ, Doug will be batting leadoff. So Doug, go ahead. You're up. All right. Speaking of Robin, I'm, uh, where is your dr- strong drink? I mean, I have
0: it uh, right here. okay. I thought maybe you'd lost your touch or something. So, <laughs> but uh, yes. All right. So we, we go way back, met several times and, and uh, had some good times. So I want to open up with robot ranch. Can you talk about how it that became the name of where you are, you know, where uh, you're currently at. And tell me, there's got to be so many stories, but tell me your best and funniest story from, from uh, the time on Robot Ranch.
3: That's a great question. I, I know everyone's like, where the heck did they get that from? And it actually <laughs> has a long progression of back in the day. So people may not know this, but I'm from the South, but I was like, I just kept moving further South and I, and I just kept going and to where you really can't go much further. Um, and I used to live just North of Miami in Hollywood, Florida, and I had moved there in 2008 in, uh, by way of Atlanta. And, um, when I moved there, you know, that's kind of where girl, girl actually got my, the start. So I can kind of segue on that later along the way, my husband and I, and we were just dating at the time, ended up, uh, my uncle in Tampa had this old sailboat in the back of his orchard in Tampa. And he said to my now husband, you can get this boat in the water for $300. And it had a tree growing out of the cockpit. And my husband, who loves a good project, said, sure, we'll take it. And like $6,000 later, we had this sailboat. And so (laughs) You dig through the trenches, you can see pictures of me with an angle grinder and um, we did like fiberglass repair and I call that my husband's wife boot camp to see if I was good wife material because he made me do all of the stuff that mo- no woman would ever want to do. <laughs> And, and including, we got very into sailboat racing. And so I swear this story has a point. So when we decided to rename the boat, there's a whole thing. When you get a boat, you have to have like, uh, and you change the name. The previous name of the sailboat was called Tackful. And we wanted to change the name. And one of the suggestions for the name, the new name was Robot. Because if you take the R-O-B from Robin and mix the um, O-T from Scott it makes robot. And that was like mm-hmm. the idea ah. for the sailboat name, which we did not choose, but we always thought it was funny. And so then fast forward in, I believe it was 2019, we were ready to get out of South Florida. South Florida is kind of like the New York City of my, of Florida. And um, it's like, we lived like in between Miami and Fort Lauderdale, and we were just ready to have some space. And so we ended up buying 30 acres out in like, I call it the swamp because literally like when I joke about being in the swamp, I kind of am in the swamp and the mosquitoes have been so freaking awful lately. But, um, but anyway, but so we bought 30 acres. I'd say like half of those are dry and a lot of it is wetland and uh, we built a house and we called it robot ranch. And so that is the, that's the, the story of how the, the name came to be. Now, the funniest story we have, I, you know, I don't know, there's there's so many, right? Like I, I, I call myself like a modern day Ava Gabor because I'm like a city girl living a country girl life, you know?
2: Da-da, like, da-da,
3: da-da. Like, da-da. <laughs> yeah, like sometimes I'm like, I cannot believe this is me right now. Like I, you know, like, I don't know if it's funny, but we've killed three rattlesnakes in our backyard and one day I was taking a shower and I actually saw it slithering across the grass. So, and my husband, I claimed that, um, I've married like a New Jersey redneck and he's not really a redneck, but I joke about it. He has like a minor hobby in taxidermy. So he actually taxidermied it during our <laughs> last hurricane because we had to clean out that freezer. So that, so, so here's maybe a funny story. So then when he, when we caught that, that snake, his friend was like, you should say, or when he shot that s- snake in the backyard, my his friend, one of his friends was like, you should save the hide. And he didn't have time to do anything with it. So it took up a ton of room in my outdoor freezer. And every time someone would come to visit, we would make them take a picture with the snake. And it's, this was literally, I, have, I should go get it and show it to you guys. This was like a five foot rattlesnake. So it was curled up and it took up a huge amount of space in the freezer. And so when Hurricane... Ian came around, which was about a year ago. We had to defrost that snake, and we, you know, we didn't have power for that. We had power, but like we didn't have internet or cell phone service for a week, so you couldn't really do much anyway because all the cell phone towers were knocked down. He taxidermied that snake, so I do have a picture of Hakeem from Grill Grates holding the snake. Like it's kind of like a funny thing, like especially the very city people would be like, "Wait, we have a photo opportunity for you," and we'll go pull this. Big ass free, uh, <laughs> snake out of their
4: freezer.
3: So that's probably one of the funnier stories. I have another one too. And Poor Hakeem, I'm like picking on him. So when I did the women's grilling clinic, my, bigger spon- my big sponsor was Grill Grates. And if no one's heard, I'm sure you guys have heard of Grill Grates, but on the steak circuit, especially that's what everybody uses to get those really amazing char marks. And um, and they're great. I, I mean, everybody uses was grill grates as you guys probably know. And so, um, Hakim came down for my women's grilling clinic, and after everyone had left, we took everyone out on a ride on the ATV around the property at night. And Hakim, who's kind of a city boy, did not want to go. Like he was like, I don't do these kind of things, and he was especially concerned about getting his tennis shoes dirty, which we were we thought was like hilarious. You know, we're like, Hakeem, you don't have to like touch anything. You're just going to be in the ATV, like it's just an ATV ride right around the property, like a like a tour of the property, basically. And it was just so funny because he he was the guy that kind of like didn't want to do the whole country thing, and we made him do it. And then um, we're out, and you know, in the middle of the woods. And lo and behold, we're driving. And by the way, there's no windshield on our ATV. We don't have a windshield. So if we ever go somewhere and you go really fast, you have to wear like your sunglasses and wear a a, a hoodie so you don't eat a bunch of bugs. Like gross. Right. But anyway, we're driving and like you see it almost like in slow mo. You're you're riding up on the, the world's largest spider web and spider, and we drove right through it and <laughs> he was at the front row. And um, we actually had people on the property that were staying in a camper um as part of the event, like a like a like a big RV, and they could hear us from the other side of the property, like everybody screamed because it was like literally the world's biggest spider. And so poor Hakeem, we made him pose with the I made him pose with the five foot rattlesnake and he had like a, a like a spider experience so um those are probably some of the funnier stories <laughs> <laughs> You might have got more than you asked for <laughs> I exactly
0: I always oh, I've always said that you'd never know what's going to come out of your mouth so this is fantastic.
1: I've eaten rattlesnake in Arizona. it's one of the delicacies that they, they started at the restaurants I want to ask you if it thought of actually barbecuing the, that rattlesnake?
3: You know, I thought about it, but um, when I was on this barbecue team back in the day, when I started doing Memphis in May, it was like the first barbecue team I was on. And they were they were like the animal house of barbecue called Two Sauce to Pork was their team name.
4: <laughs>
0: and for
3: our exotic, and you've probably heard of them, Doug, right? Like,
0: <laughs> I um, remember that name.
3: Two Sauce to Pork. Gotta, gotta love these team names. But we did Rattlesnake one year as are um like exotic entry and i just remember i was like yeah i'll probably never have that again like of all the reptiles i can eat that's not the one i want to eat you know so i definitely had no intention of eating it now i i am unofficially the reptile queen because i've 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 kind of made myself the unofficial ambassador of eating iguana but that actually is a really tasty reptile unlike rattlesnake
2: <laughs> tastes like chicken.
3: It actually does taste like it tastes better than chicken. Honestly. Really? I don't know if you guys have heard this story, but I cooked iguana for the first time, like four years ago, because I just got this idea because literally people in South Florida, they just shoot, they shoot iguanas all day long with pellet guns and put them straight in their trash. Like I was actually talking to a, cause they're, they're just that, they're an invasive species. They've kind of gotten out of control, but I happened to post something really like I posted a, you know, hashtag only in Florida thing, you know, on my Instagram at the time. And because I, I guess I was just kind of, I the idea of like one of my best girlfriends shooting iguanas in her backyard with a pellets with a pellet gun just seemed so weird to me because she was, she's like miss Fort Lauderdale. Like I just couldn't even picture it, you know? Come to find out, one of my followers in Latin America was like, Oh, iguana's delicious. And I uh, and and some of the countries down there, they eat it all the time and it's a delicacy. And they make something called Wiki Wachi stew out of it, which is like a coconut broth based stew. And so I decided I'd try it and I made tacos with it because I mean, anything fried is usually pretty good. And who doesn't love tacos? But I have to say, like, it's a really good meat, and you know, being married to a hunter, I always just think about like, if you're gonna kill meat, why not eat it if you can. And so thinking of the like, some people have designated trash cans that are just like their iguana trash can. So I just was like, ah, it just feels like so much waste, you know, and so that's kind of how I decided to do it. So I wasn't trying to be that, that crazy girl. But Maybe accidentally I am, but it is called chicken of the tree, the other chicken of the tree. And so if you're in South Florida and you ever get a chance to try it, it actually is really good.
0: Yeah, you have a recipe of tacos, uh, iguana tacos on your, on in case any of the listeners are interested. Exotic meats on her website, <laughs> exotic meat recipes. She has an iguana taco recipe. Is it the wiki wiki?
3: It's, it's uh, the iguana tacos. And I do like an ahi. Amarillo sauce, which is like in South Florida, they have a huge Peruvian population. And so I have Ajay de Amarillo is uh, like a, like those little uh, yellow peppers you get in Peru and they make a paste out of it. And it's a lot, it's in a lot of their dishes. And I basically mix that with like, like sour cream and you put it on the tacos and it's delicious. It's, it's, it's kind of like a, uh, almost like a Baja style taco. I think it's always fun. I mean, tacos, everybody loves tacos. That's kind of my go-to when I have people over is to like set up a taco bar and let people go to town.
4: Yeah. The website
3: tonight. So that's, that's my hostess trick is like taco bars are really like my favorite thing to do.
2: So Robin, the website is grillgirl.com, but we're kind of catching you as your, you know, your empire is established, but. You didn't start out as Robin Lindar's grill girl. You had to start, you know, small. We've got to ask you, of course, your origin story. I'm sure you've been asked many, many times. But how do you go from a girl from Mississippi who can cook a mean turkey <laughs> to, well, thank you. to grill girl who is on TV and the magazines and the cookbooks and well, take take us through that a little bit.
3: You're very kind and you're flattering me. I think anyone, I mean, I think everyone has imposter syndrome. At least I do. Like, I'm still like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm doing this, you know, finally full time. No, honestly, I have just always liked to cook. Like I remember in, in college, I was, I had went through this like hot sauce making phase and, you know, then I went through a baking phase and, I always had grand, I had like one grandma that was like the southern cook and she fried everything in cast iron. So I've always been food curious, but I I actually was always more of a food writer. In in college, I have a journalism degree. And then I wanted to go, I actually wanted to go to Johnson and Wales when they were in Charleston, if you guys remember, which most people don't realize. That's why they have such an amazing food scene there, because they used to have a Johnson and Wales there and they had a lot of chefs that opened up restaurants there, you know. And um, but after college, I was Already in debt. So I just went and got a job, but I would freelance on the side and do some writing. And, you know, when I ended up in South Florida, and then I was dating my husband, I think half of it was that I was so happy to have someone to cook for, you know. And so I would get home and have a couple glasses of Pinot Grigio and and, and just really like culinarily explore because when I moved down there, you know, when you go to the grocery store in South Florida, it's like every aisle is the international food aisle and you're in the tropics, you know? And so like the, the stuff you have available there is just different and new and exciting. So when I was like, I'd say back in 2008 was when um the website started. And I was really just in a very creative time of my life where I was cooking a lot. And I went to go use my husband's grill. I think he was out of town. And I pretty much like, just about singed my eyebrows off. I mean, it was like an old crappy Charbroil with uh, where you know where the gas starters burn out, so you keep pressing the oh, gas, yeah. button, and then eventually you get the flame ball effect. And which I honestly think is why a lot of women are afraid of grilling because they're afraid that's going to happen. And after that, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened. And I ended up buying him a new grill, and I bought him like a uh, at the time like an eight hundred dollar. Weber Genesis. And for me, that was a lot of money at the time. So I was like, listen, I'm going to use this thing all the time and get my money's worth. And then I fell really fell in love with grillings. I think for a lot of women now, their gateway grill is a pellet smoker because it's easy and there is no flame bowl effect. You base, it's like an outdoor oven, right? You press a button and beep, beep, beep. I want to be 350, just like my oven or 400, or I want to smoke and put in 250. But the gas grill was my, my gateway grill and then I uh and you know, I was just having so much fun like exploring like different stuff and throwing random stuff on the grill. I'm like, let's bake on the grill, let's, you know, let's do oysters on the grill. Let's if we can do it in the kitchen, let's do it outside. Cause you know, the tropics were new to me. I was like, why would I want to be cooped up in my kitchen when I can hang out in my backyard and I've got parrots perched on the power lines, you know, and my, I can throw coconuts in the, the pool for my dogs. And so anyway. I, it just kind of morphed and it was very much a blog, you know, it wasn't like, like the website it is now. I mean, a lot of my recipes were like a mixture of me talking about my life with a, a recipe thrown in, you know, like you can still find some of the old school, the OG grill girl recipes. Like when I announced, you know, that I was pregnant with my kid, I think it was like a uh, a biscuit recipe because I was going through a biscuit. But so that is how the blog came to be was, I mean, it was really like a whim and Pinot Grigio. And one night I was like, I have a blog now. And it was very much, you know, it's kind of been a um, journey, you know, to kind of build it into a brand. Like I, I actually only quit my day job like three years ago to finally do this full time. So it's been, but it's been a fun process. Like I've learned a lot and I, I just, I feel like a culinary explore, you know, like I try stuff out on myself. I I share it with others and, you know, and just a perpetual student. I feel like, especially on the grill, there's so much that hasn't been explored and, um, and I'm, I'm here for it. You know, like I, I honestly, I think that the hardest part is that when you try to take something you love and turn it into a business, you can sometimes almost take the fun out of it because then you're trying to run it as a business. You know what I mean? Like, For me, I think what's really awesome is when I actually do have time to cook and I'm not just doing things like search engine optimizing recipes on my website or, you know, stuff like that or like editing content. I think that's probably the hardest part for all small business owners and entrepreneurs is like trying to figure out how to scale and figure out how to, in a smart way, hand things off to others because you can't do everything and then also grow at the same time. So, but no, it's been a ton of fun and um you know cooking is a family affair like Hunter actually entered his first grilling competition not last year but the year before at the Shed Steak Showdown and he got 6th in in his first grilling competition so I was I was pretty stoked because nice. he was competing against like pretty seasoned teenagers and I'm not going to lie I was like the momager you know I mean we had like a recipe plan we did like they all do grilled pork chops but we had like a Grilled pork chop and my rub with an orange miso glaze. So I might have been a little more hands-on than all the other parents. I don't know, but I'll take it. You know, I wanted him to do well, and and he had a good experience. So he's kind of getting into it too, which is fun.
0: Awesome. I wanted to ask you on your Instagram profile if you could explain what real food advocate means and what it means to you.
3: Right, that's Doug. That is a good question, and I think if you guys follow my stories, you'll see that this is something I'm really passionate about. And I would honestly, you just need more characters in a bio on Instagram, right? So I've always been very interested in nutrition. In fact, I wanted, I had thought about taking nutrition in college, but when I saw or the all the organic chemistry, I said that is not for me. But I have especially the past couple of years really started digging more into what's in the food. If I go back like to the the five to six year ago Robin, I was very into like healthy eating in my mind. You know, I've always eaten pretty low carb. And if you look at my site, like grilling, of course, is a, is an easy way to be low carb. But when I look at the robin of 10 years ago, I would eat low carb and pair it with diet coke, you know, and now and I've kind of had this progression. And now I know diet coke is basically poison and I really wonder what I did to myself cuz I drank a lot of diet coke. I probably put a hole in my brain honestly. It's disturbing once you know. And so then, you know, it, and then I got into like healthier eating. I read that book. Um it starts it starts with food which was kind of basically like the basis for the whole 30 which was a, at the time a pretty revolutionary book. And that was probably like 5 years ago and I started really getting more into paleo style eating. Um, And, and really what I liked about that was that I'm sharing with you guys, the progression to what kind of where it's, where it's been and where it's, where it is now, you know, where you really start to look at things like ingredients and in quality of ingredients. Like you're not just eating to like stay, like, I'm not just eating low carb to stay thin, but I'm questioning what I'm putting in my body, you know, and what I'm, what I'm feeding my child. And Where I've been for like the past two years is really kind of picking apart everything in the food supply, because honestly, it's kind of sketchy when you start to date, like look under the, when you start to really look into things Like, like when you realize like other countries won't take food from the U.S. based on our food practices, you know, and probably the biggest eye opener to me was I read this uh, this report on glyphosate, and I don't know if most people know this, but you know glyphosate—that's like Roundup, right—and it, it ties into GMO crops because these crops are genetically modified to be resistant to they're or they're called Roundup Ready to be resistant to glyphosate, which means that when you eat GMO crops, you are eating a t- I think what really I kind of red-pilled myself because I realized that like literally everything in our food supply has some level of a poison on it. And it's I'm not trying to be hyperbolic, but it's 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 really disturbing when you get into it. And so I started like writing this clean eating guide, and I I literally cannot finish it because I keep finding new stuff that they're doing. I mean, it's just um it's disturbing. And so what I ended up doing was, so when I read that glyphosate report and just just to like recap for all of your readers, I think the most disturbing part is that what a lot of people realize is that they, you know, that like fruits and vegetables could be sprayed. You know, that a GMO crop means that they get sprayed, but what most people don't know is that glyphosate is used as a drying agent. So even things that you would not expect to have a very large dose of chemicals in them do so things like oats and oat milk and wheat that you put in pasta so people you know like if you and what it's really made me realize is that all these food all this food marketing that's going like where everyone's like oh it's plant-based it's plant-based yay it's just a bunch of bs it's marketing and it being plant-based is actually worse for you and and i and i realized like in the 90s when i was like a like my teens that was when the low fat craze was in. And, and that's like, let's carb load. It's okay because it's low fat. Let me pig out on, on snack well, Snackwell's cookies. And you know what I mean? And so it just makes you realize that everything is that that's in your face usually has a corporate interest and it has nothing to do with your health, right? And so part of this, I got so triggered because Doug, you know, I'm a steak judge. I do steak cook-offs occasionally and I eat a yeah. lot of steak. Like I love steak. Who doesn't love steak? I read this glyphosate report and I couldn't really get to the bottom of what the data was telling me. And the most disturbing part for me was that the levels of glyphosate in the like alfalfa and hay that they actually fed the cows were off so off the charts high that I was disturbed by the levels that they were eating. So I actually, um, I couldn't, I couldn't get to the bottom of whether or not a cow when it ingests all that herbicide if it goes to you right and so i actually and it cost me a lot of money but i i mean i was i lost sleep i was losing sleep over this um so i went and bought a bunch of meat from the grocery store and also from like just conventional and then also from organic producers and i wanted to see what the data said about the levels of glyphosate in the meat and what the results were and and I still haven't really figured out the best way to present this data because I think it took it's just taken me a while to process and how I want to present this to my followers and and everyone cuz for for a bit there I was like is eating let's say um like gmo corn fed beef really bad for me too you know like I didn't know but so anyway the net net was I sent a bunch of meat including ground beef, ribeyes, chicken, uh, to what else did I send? there's a pork chop pork chops to do a health research institute, which is like a lab that moms across America uses for all of their reports, which if you ever read them, they're pretty disturbing when you figure out what's in our food. But the net net was the beauty of the animals, and especially beef, is that they pee out, they urinate out the glyphosate because it's water soluble. That's a beautiful thing. But what I also learned is that all of the other toxins they ingest, you know, in the form of herbicides and pesticides, are fat soluble, which means it collects in their fat. So mm. it doesn't mean that you're off the hook from eating clean meat. You still really want to know where your food comes from. And so for me, what this has really been the the whole journey for this has been that it's really important to know where your food comes from because um you really can't trust anyone or anything like even when for example, when you get organic food, it's most likely still got some level of spraying on it like if it comes from outside of the US people don't realize that anytime something crosses our borders and has to go on a truck to be shipped, they're gonna put some kind of insecticide in that truck before like let's say it came from Canada to the. US. They also don't realize like chicken, even if it's organic, they don't list the bleaching agent that they put on it because chicken is like, especially in the US, the way they raise it, it's 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 unsanitary. So everything goes through a bleaching agent. So when you like, you know, I was just thinking when I go buy organic chicken at Costco, who knows if it's been bleached? Most likely it has, you know what I mean? And that's why Europe won't take food from us. So So Doug, sorry, I didn't mean to be a Debbie Downer for everyone, but I've just gotten, um, honestly, So, but the net net is I actually believe that eating a very protein focused diet, which is beautiful for my brand because I grill everything, is actually one of the healthiest ways to eat because a lot of these animals act as um, like a filtration system. You know what I mean? Like it would be, in my opinion, it's much healthier for me to eat a taco where I make a tortilla out of eggs. And pork panko than it is for me to eat a tortilla made out of wheat, unless it was an organic, an organic uh, tortilla. Mainly because that tortilla was, if it's not organic, it was going to be sprayed with glyphosate, and then most likely that wheat's already also been genetically modified so much it's hard for the body to digest it. As a net net, and to kind of put a like a like a book in this conversation, I've actually joined like a food buyers club. Locally here, where I am, in, in like North Fort Myers, Florida, and Punta Gorda area, where I found this guy who's awesome, and it's a it's a faith based Christian organization that it's a way to operate kind of outside of having to shop at the grocery stores of the world. I'm not saying I don't go to the grocery store because I have a terrible green thumb and my growing skills have my have been terrible. But the point is, like everything that you source through this Buyers Club comes from local farmers. You know that the meat has not been injected with a bunch of stuff. And you're also supporting local growers and and helping local small businesses. So, So if you like see my story today, I was talking about raw dairy. Like I can't eat cheese or milk, but if it's raw, I can. Because what most people don't know is that when you pasteurize dairy, you kill all the natural digestive enzymes that they already have. So if you can get raw dairy from a trustworthy source, it's actually like very healing to your gut. And your gut is tied in with your immune system, so it makes sense to want to heal your gut. So anyway, so that's a side of my brand outside of grilling. I that that's definitely grown, and it kind of differentiates me because yes, I love grilling, I love good food. I'll talk about tailgating snacks all day, but my recipes will all have a twist on them. Like when I tell you to use bacon, I'm going to be like, you should buy nitrate-free bacon from a tr- source you trust because I've done the research to know that companies like Smithfield, which I previously had had sponsorships with like up to like four years ago, actually do feed their, their pigs garbage. Like it's legal in the state of North Carolina to feed pigs garbage. And that's really gross, which is why you want to know where your food comes from. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. sorry, I didn't mean it is, it is legal and that's disturbing, but I didn't mean to gross everyone else, but it is nice to, you want to know where your food comes from is the point. Like you want to know.
1: Yep. Absolutely, and you you mentioned tailgating, and we are baseball and BBQ. And I know you wrote to me that you have tons of tailgating hacks and recipes for for tailgating. And when we go to ball games, we see tailgaters all the time. So why don't you give us some of your tailgating hacks?
3: I don't know if this is a hack per se, but I actually just started working with GCI Outdoor. Um, I actually just put up a reel for them yesterday, and it is worth mentioning. I don't know about you guys. I'm 5'1", so doing things like putting up a tent uh, can take – it's a little challenging, I'm not going to lie. They have a tent that you can put up by yourself in one minute in like with like a lever. So I've been exploring more tailgating gear. For me, I'd say my favorite tailgating food is bar none chicken wings because I think they are – that's just my love language. And you. they're like, who doesn't love chicken wings? And you can dress them so many ways. So if you go on my website, I probably have like at least 15 chicken wing recipes. The one I'm really in love with right now is what I call Florida orange wings, which are basically, it's like a a sweet and spicy buffalo sauce. Well, that's redundant, right? Like buffalo sauce is already sweet or spicy, but I pair mine with my rub, which has granulated honey in it. Mm -hmm. And so what it does is it makes it, it kind of tones down the heat a little bit, but it also adds adds citrus and honey vibes to it and and undertone. So it just makes it, it just, you just have to try it. It's yummy. I mean, you, you basically put my rub, which my rub being a citrus, it's a kefir lime, granulated honey, lime juice powder rub. And you pair that with your, like your traditional Buffalo sauce, right? Frank's red hot butter. And then you pour that on at the end. And it's, it's, there's something magical happens when all of those things combine.
1: And that's the sunshine state of mind rub.
3: Yes. That's my, my unique rub that also couples, that is also a cocktail rimmer. So you can not only put it on all proteins, but also use it on a margarita, on a Bloody Mary, on, on all the things. So another thing I think when people think about tailgating, what I like to do is be thematic with the recipes, right? So think about how like, this is tips for for your listeners, but like, think about your team colors and how you, or like your team mascot and how you can kind of go with it, right? Like, so I just built a big home gating scene in my backyard uh, for actually GCI Outdoor. And I, you know, I did the the alligator tiki lights. Cause I did a, uh, like a UF theme, you know, you uni- know, gators, right. Which honestly I, I will say I was being lazy cause I already had a, like a, a alligator floaty in my pool. So I figured I'm just going to go with <laughs> the gator theme. But like my point is take your team colors and see how you can work with that. So like I did the Florida orange wings. Cause it's got the orange, right? Florida orange. So it goes with it. So let's, let's say you're developing a tailgating menu you can do something with those colors, or those, or colors that have a flavor, and go with it, right? So, I also did a Florida orange margarita. So, with the color orange, I actually did a an apérol an apérol margarita. So, most people think of apérol as using, making a spritz with it, where you you sometimes combine it with prosecco, uh, maybe different liqueurs, soda water, all that. Um, this was truly a margarita but there's other things you can do, right? Like, so, you know, we have orange and blue in in that color and also gators, but um, I think there's fun things to do. Like, let's say like I could have done, and I had thought about it doing things like gator ice cube molds for the cocktails or um, how you could do like gator gummy shots, right? So if you have... I don't know. I'm thinking thinking of baseball. Give give me a mascot you guys want to go with and I can spitball here.
1: <laughs> well, there's one right at Mike bowl Mr. Mr. Right. Matt right there. Mr. Matt.
4: <laughs> right there. Right.
3: So you can you can like kind of build on a theme. Um, other things I've done before, and and I always have contributing writers that give me great ideas, is like mini pizzas, and you do the toppings with the color of your team. So let's say you're you know, like you're the, the. I'm trying to think. You guys, I'm not super baseball minded, so <laughs> I mean, I don't know a lot of. So bear with me, but um, let's just say you know you're you're um, a red and white theme. You could do like an Alfredo sauce base for your pizza, and then do like chopped red peppers or chopped orange peppers, and really kind of go with the theme that way. Or if you have black in your in your colors, you could use olives. So there's like lots of little things you can do that way. You know, to kind of build a menu based on a theme and, and just have fun with it. I mean, for me, I'll be the first to say, I don't really care that much about sports, but I love tailgating because I love a good party with lots of finger food. And I think that's what <laughs> it's about, you know?
2: Absolutely. Well, you, you, Robin, you wrote, um, there's a few articles online. One I was very interested in. Five reasons you encourage men and women to get outside and grill. And the five are grill therapy, smoke flavor, time with family, less dishes. That's a good one. Yes. (laughs) And the barbecue and grilling community. I encourage people to see that because that it makes sense. Everything you said on that makes a lot of sense.
3: I don't think people if you realize that if you do grilling, right, it really is less dishes, you know, and I, I feel like especially to women, I need to like, shout this from the rooftops because it's just such a missed opportunity. Like, for me, I, I really in 2024, it's my goal is to really start doing more marketing to women because I still feel like a lot of like even the grill brands out there still only speak to men as it relates to grilling. Like, if you look for a stock photo for a, a woman behind a grill, and I can tell you this because I was looking for some. There aren't any, like they do not exist. Um, and so I just, in my backgrounds in marketing, I think of like, if you've already kind of saturated 50% of the population, but you know that the other half has not really been marketed to and has a ton of purchasing power, why would you not like try to market to them? So yes, I think the, the whole idea, the whole idea that there are less dishes. Like think about when you make pasta and you, you get at least four dishes dirty. I mean, four pots and pans dirty when you're cooking versus grilling, you know, a a simple weeknight grilling session of chicken thighs. I mean, that's easy peasy, right? Like, you know, and if you're smart and you like rinse your pan after you threw it on the grill and then reuse that pan, like you can totally get away with very minimal dishes. But the other thing to talk about is that the the barbecue and grilling community is really pretty awesome. And I think that's why people love, like when they get into it, they realize like, it's just, it's very inclusive. And it's kind of like, it's like, it's own little religion that's not judgmental, (laughs) you know? So um, it's very, it's awesome. And I think that's really was one of the silver linings of COVID was that it actually forced people to realize that Um, They could cook at home more. And the outcropping of that was more people grilling, which is cool because, you know, and it's really spurred like a lot of demand and content creation and and ideas in the grilling world. So I think that's the beauty of of the whole grilling community. And I think some brands have embraced that really well. Like if you look at at a company like Big Green Egg, they've really capitalized on like the experience, right? Like, I mean, it's it's actually brilliant if you see what they do, how they host these egg fests and people will go and spend their own money to go cook in a festival for other people just to be part of that experience. But like there's not really any gain for the person who cooks in it other than just they they enjoy cooking on eggs and, you know, but like you know what I mean? Like it's, it's an opportunity for the egg to market themselves where their own users do all of the marketing, which is brilliant. So, um, so yeah, but it, it's, it's very much a community and it's, it's really cool to to see more people coming into the fold. And and I do, I see more young people getting in and by young, I mean, you know, I'm young, I'm still 29, obviously. <laughs> so, <right>. yes. Uh,
4: <laughs> sure. Uh, yes, but- of course. <laughs>
3: You know, but like younger people getting into grilling, and um, more women getting into grilling, and so you know, the next generation is going to be kids like my son, you know, who are are hopefully going to hopefully he'll he can you know he he's eight he can cook a burger on his own if he wanted to if I could pry him off his phone, but that's that's going to be the next generation of the barbecue community. So it'll be interesting to see how that that develops.
2: You know, it's very interesting because baseball is very slow to embracing women in the game. I mean, it, it, you know, the fact that Kim Eng was the, you know, GM of the Marlins and we still are waiting for a regular game, regular season game umpire to be a woman. I think barbecue is, is a little advanced past that, but it shouldn't be that we have to have Robin Lindars on and, she has to talk about how women still need to get into barbecue. There are some amazing pit masters and they're you know, and it's just hopefully that's not something that continues to to be It should just be a love of cooking on a fire i I hope that one day it's just it's a it's a pit person and that's it. you, you know what I mean
3: I agree. I totally agree. And, you know, and I don't want to say no women are into grilling, you know, but I think in my world, like of Instagram and seeing other people out there, there's plenty of women in grilling, but I think like, let's say, for example, I I went out one night and had a girls night to myself and I went and, you know, this is, how, this is how old I am. That It was exciting for me to go uh, grocery shopping at Trader Joe's and then go have um, a glass of Pinot Noir and a steak at uh, Outback because someone else cooked it and, you know, all the things, right? And so I'm sitting next to this couple and it's just like, I, I guess I do my own research, right? But it's like the woman's like, oh, I just let my husband do all the grilling, but I prep everything for him and hand it off. And that's like, the, like when I talk to women one-on-one or like my friends around town, that's what I find. You know what I mean? So I think that's kind of like the average lady is still intimidated and lets her husband do it. Now I will say, maybe the guys are smart and they know it's really fun and they don't want to, they don't want to give it up because once I realized how fun it was, like if I had to be inside prepping dishes versus outside grilling dishes, I know where I'm going to be like, and I wouldn't want my secret to get out. So maybe, maybe that's it, you know?
2: (laughs) Yeah, the guys are kind of, you know, they're outside and they're, ah, damn, I, I, I burnt myself again. You don't want to be out here. No.
3: <laughs> it's terrible. The mosquitoes Cut are some
2: terrible. more vegetables, please. That's the important exactly. part.
3: <laughs> exactly. Ex- exactly. You're so right. So <sighs> the guys want to keep it their secret, but we're on to you guys. We're on to you. <laughs>
0: Doug. Well, go ahead. Well, well, Robin, uh, thank you so much for your, for your time. Uh, um, I get to open and be the, uh, Mariano Rivera. That's for you, Jeff. Um, no, oh, thank you very much for the show. <laughs> <laughs> so and I want to, you know, it's odd. Sometimes you just put things out in the ether And, you know, yesterday I happened to tag you in my post on venison on on Instagram and you, and you commented. So thank you very much for that. And I basically commented that, uh, you you know, I did, it didn't need my wife's blueberry barbecue, venison, blueberry, jalapeno barbecue sauce uh, on your, where the recipe is on your website that I'm a contributor to. So um,
3: I love it. Yeah, so I... Uh, Thank you, and guys. Doug has recipes on my website, just so you know, which is pretty I, awesome. So if you plug I, his name on, I think you're on the contributors tab. So you guys I check am.
0: it out. I am. I'm on the contributors tab. So, you know, along those lines, you know, I actually had forgotten until Lynn called me, you know, and said, hey, we want you to be on, you know, with Robin and et cetera. So when was that? Probably three years ago that I, I did that. I told you to do something and you did not do it. So I did it for you, and I'm going to release what I did for you three years ago. I told you to get oh. a couple of web domains, and you did not. And I did the same thing for Meathead, too, because I told him, and he didn't listen to me. And then he finally bartered them back and got them from me. But I have oh Girl with 2 lscom and if you oh. and if you do www.grillgirl2ls.com, it goes to your website. And if you, I've got Grill oh, Girl no, Robin. thank you for thinking of me. And I've oh, got well, Grill Girl smart. Robin, which is part of your brand now. That I know. It's that
4: developed. goes
0: to that goes to your Grill Girl website oh, as well. No, okay, and it has for I'll like three for years you. since I did did it. I was like, oh my, my gosh. gosh.
3: You know, very I, sweet I to think of me. I, I have You're very sweet.
0: I'm a domain, um, just like I'm a spice barbecue spice hoarder, I'm a domain
2: spy, <laughs> uh, hoarder. So, well, that's smart
4: that's smart i love it
2: he's he's part of the barbecue and grilling community that's that's who you're talking about i mean good ones we
3: look out for each other it's like it is like i'm an only child but i feel like i have lots of brothers and sisters in barbecue because i really do like i'm so blessed that way and i'm blessed to have you so thank you and i do need grill roll robin so thank you
0: you you I'd bet be like, i told is- you to get them i already didn't bought get them. it i did the same thing with traeger they i told them to get them in the, anyway so but i thought that might be worth maybe getting a recipe or two back uh more on your site so hopefully uh- any
3: recipes you got <laughs> doug you you bring them me. i always need more content right it is like i'm i'm always need more stuff and i will say i got my facebook page hacked so if everyone will go like my new page I just went from twenty seven thousand followers on Facebook to like two hundred, so because um, oh. I just started a new.
4: One. Uh. Meta
3: is actually terrible to work with. Um, yeah, that's the the beauty and the curse of social is that it's great until you need their help and they'll never help you. So, like at least at Meta, there it's yeah. So anyway, it, if, it, if you guys want to follow me, I'd love it if if you guys could follow my new page, which is. I think it's it's I started it, it's a uh, grillgirl.com aka Robin Lindars is how it pulls up
2: grillgirl.com aka Robin Lindars
3: you got it and I hope that never happens to you honestly the guy that scammed me uh, he tried to scam Alabama uh, Alabama Grillmaster. they target content creators and so I actually had gone and did a post about it and then Rashid Phillips Shared it on his podcast, so maybe it helped one other person from getting scammed. And I've been scammed so many times, you'd think I'd, I I would have learned my lesson. But <laughs> scammers kind of scam, and they're very um, they're very uh, sophisticated these days. So, the funny part That's- is. I got scammed by these people asking me to go on um, with a comedian to be on a podcast with a comedian. And uh, they were pretending they were this comedian. And then, like, a month later, I actually was on a podcast with a comedian. So I'm like, well, at least it was like realistic the way I got (laughs)
2: scammed. Who was the comedian?
3: I was on with Dave Williams. He has a, a podcast. It is called, it's all about meat smoking. He's like a comedian that also really loves barbecue. So oh, okay. um, he's a funny guy. He's a funny guy. Yeah.
1: But so Robin, besides uh, grillgirl.com and, and Instagram, do you have any other social media you want to share?
3: um Yeah, just on Instagram, uh, Grill Girl Robin. If you're on Pinterest and you are there, I'm also Grill Girl Robin. And I will be launching, I am tentatively launching my next women's grilling. Cl- oh, I'm also on TikTok, but I'm not as active there. on grill It's all Grill Girl Robin, usually. I'm going to be launching another women's grilling clinic. I'm trying to get it together. Uh, this spring. So watch out for that. And uh, some other, some other new stuff I'm working on that uh, it's early stage, but I'm trying to outsource some of my social so I can focus on projects Uh like that clean eating guide I told you guys um, about and some other things that are kind of projects for me. So yeah,
2: she has the healthy electric smoking cookbook. We didn't mention that. I mean, it's, it's amazing.
3: For, foray into doing that's, it's got a keto and paleo swap. So it's very like, that's kind of, I can like, I love grilling a barbecue, but I can tell you how to do it in a smart way. Like I, you know, when I see some of these pit masters and I won't name names that are like so overweight, I just like worry for them. I'm like, your recipes look great, but are you going to have a heart attack? You know what I mean? And I, I think you can enjoy good food, but also be healthy and I and I think actually a lot of it is like you you should be focused on clean proteins and not the carbs and the macs, mac and cheeses and the things like that. You know what I mean? And the processed. Um, and we love bacon, but you don't have to wrap everything in bacon. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs>
4: yeah.
1: I just wrapped myself to in bacon. That, and I just want to mention that it's Grill go Robin, R-O-B-Y-N. My sister spells it with an I, so everybody, it's it's Y-N. Robin, thank you very you much for joining up, us on base. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for thank you for joining us on baseball and BBQ. We really appreciate it.
3: Hey, it was great to meet you guys, and I hope you have a great week. And thanks for having me. Have me on anytime you need a little little tailgate inspo, I'm here for it.
1: Thank well, you. <laughs> we might Robin. take you up on that. Yes, thank you very much. Hi, this is
0: Gary Mack of the Mets Musings podcast, and if you like barbecue you like baseball then you have to listen to baseball and bbq with jeff and len they always have the best guests from the world of baseball and the world of barbecue all in one little package so check it out baseball and bbq with len and jeff okay guys take it away
1: and thank you very much Robin. She is definitely one of the, an interesting, interesting guest.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, j- you could basically just sit back and let her just talk because she's so interesting, has so much to say. And then add Doug into the mix and that yeah. she was surprised. That was that was you could tell she was really pleasantly surprised and. And was was very happy with that so and, uh, it,
1: and if you go on Robin's website you'll see a,
2: a picture of Doug. Yes yeah. he's on there so it's very nice so maybe one day our picture will be on there but uh maybe not We'll you know yeah we shall see. Jeff before we get to something from you let me tell everybody to go to baseballbbq.com baseballbbq.com grilling tools and accessories holiday season's coming absolutely yeah before you know it it will be here and uh why wait why wait they're going to be extremely busy so get in your order early
1: it's a great great present have it engraved it's unusual it's a a conversation starter
2: and it's great tools so go to baseball bbq.com right okay now jeff give us your your pre-holiday gift to us you're going to give us your two cents. Yes.
1: (laughs) Yes. My two cents. Well, it's all coming down to the wire. Fans complained and complained about how the best teams were eliminated early in the playoffs. Well, boo-hoo Rob Manfred and his crew, the owners and Tony Clark with his followers, the players have agreed to that format. Baseball has moved to an NCAA tournament model folks and folks. It's not getting, it's not going back, but regardless, the Rangers and Diamondbacks are giving us a compelling World Series. Well, at least of this recording on October 30th. Len, did I just say October 30th? Shut the front door! October 30th is only Game 3. October 31st is Game 4. November baseball is here to stay. I can't wait for the Rockies and Twins to play the World Series, outdoors in frigid temperatures, but I digress. World Series should end by mid-October. Never going to happen, but that should be the goal. One way to speed up the playoff is to, is for a first-round best-of-three, play it over two, day, two days. Doubleheader the first day, split double header, of course, because why would the parties give up a paid gate? And if there's a sweep, well, series over. If not, it's a winner-take-all, and it takes two days. The format has been talked about on podcasts, talk radio, and fan forums. Everyone complains, but no one has the answers. You want the top teams to play for the championship? Well then, MLB must reduce the number of teams in the playoffs, not more teams. And my friends, that ain't happening. Disagree? Call 516-855-8214 and tell us your two cents. Anyway, enjoy the rest of the World Series, folks. What's left of it. We know it will we know there won't be any weather issues.
2: And that's my two cents. Nice. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I'll I'll give you a nickel for that two cents.
4: <laughs>
1: and I mentioned a phone number. I'll mention it again, 516-855-8214. Email us if you disagree. Baseball and at gmail.com. Comment on our Facebook page, baseball and bbq. We have a Twitter or an X at baseball and BBQ. Instagram, baseball barbecue, where barbecue is all spelled out. Our website is www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. and Please rate, review, share subscribe, all that.
2: Friends. All right, Jeff, I'm going to say something. Yeah. I know that a lot of people don't like the way the playoffs went because the best teams got eliminated. Okay. But if you're a fan of Texas, you're a fan of the Diamondbacks, the Arizona Diamondbacks, okay, the fact that they are now playing in the World Series, you would have never thought it. You would have never thunk it, and I think that it gives it gives hope to to fans that root for teams that maybe don't have the you know the the payrolls. Well, I, that's bad because Texas spent a lot of money this season, so that kind of shoots that theory down. But my point being that you can have your team in the World Series. And you and you wouldn't even think it possible. I don't I I I kinda like the playoffs. I like so
1: I, you you like tournament style playoffs.
2: I kind of do. Yes. So
1: so the, the best teams that we always knew they're not gonna they're not gonna win. I mean, obviously they have a chance to win, uh, but the, the, the odds are, are lower, which is fine. I mean that's the way baseball wants that it's all about the money and that's what's happening. So it's if not going you play- back.
2: If you play great the whole season, you got to keep playing great just a little longer. I I don't know. I just know that it's nice that you've got more. You got a chance to have your team in it. And I, well, I think that's great.
1: Well, one of my friends, who shall we name nameless, Larry, <laughs> he, he thinks that only teams that win a minimum 90 games should be in the playoffs. So I go, what happens when only five teams make the playoffs?
2: 14? <laughs> well 14? Hmm. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I just, I'm enjoying it.
1: Okay. Well, you I'm
2: know what? Come
1: next season, there'll be at least five new managers in places. You know, the the five teams looking for managers, the Angels, right. the Astros, the Padres, the Guardians, and the Mets. And the Giants just filled their their uh, managerial spot with uh, Bob Melvin, who went from the Padres to the Giants. Right. There were six openings. Now they are five openings now.
2: I love when a guy gets fired by a team because he's terrible and then gets hired by another team. And they say, oh, we're so glad. He's he's a perfect fit. We're so glad he was available. And, and, and then a couple of years later, they say, ah, didn't work out. And – you know, Len,
1: our next guest talks about Tony Gwynn. Any manager would love to have Tony Gwynn
2: on his team. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that is that is obvious. But before I get to that, Jeff, let me just tell everyone one more thing. The barbecue quote of the week. Barbecue is an expression of love shared with friends and family. Now the person that said that is unknown. But I have a feeling a lot of people say that. But it is a quote. I could have sworn you just said that. <laughs> I could I could take credit for it. But somebody said it <laughs> and it just says it's unknown. But it is a barbecue quote. Tony Gwynn, we were talking about Tony Gwynn, Jeff. Yes. I think everyone's going to really enjoy this interview. I think they're really going to enjoy the book. I think anyone that got to see him and his career, got to enjoy. He really was just Mr. Padre, played his whole career with one team, and what an amazing hitter, amazing hitter. You know what? He wasn't a power hitter. He hit for average. He had, you know, he he had his, his extra base hits or whatever. But what a player. Anyway, listen to this interview with Scott Kingdon, who has written the book, Tony Gwynn. baseball life of Mr. Padre.
1: Today we are talking about the great Tony Gwynn. Hall of Famer Tony Gwynn, 15-time All-Star, five-time Gold Glove, seven-time Silver Slugger, and eight-time batting title champion. Lifetime batting average of three thirty-eight, and he received 97.6% of the Hall of Fame vote. We are speaking to Scott Kingdon, the author of the new book, Tony Gwynn, The Baseball Life of Mr. Padre. Mr. Kingdom specializes in writing about sports, law, history, and current events. Oh, he's also a former corporate litigation attorney and certified mediator. Welcome to Baseball and BBQ, Scott Kingdom.
5: Thank you. Welcome, Scott. Glad to be with you. Scott, are you a native of California? No, I'm not. I'm actually a native uh, from Indiana. From Indiana.
1: Uh, Why the interest in Tony Gwynn?
5: Oh, that's a good question. So... uh... I think my first interest started in the late 1990s. I was at the Louisville Slugger Museum and Factory, and we are touring the back part, which is where they're making the bath. And they're talking about various baths for various levels of baseball. They get to the end, they're talking about major league bath, and they refer to a particular bath, the tour guide being made for a particular player. I don't remember who the player was. But at the end of the tour, she asked, does anybody have any question? A lady raises her hand. She says, "Well, who pays for the bath?" And the guide answers, that, "Well, of course, the major league team pay for the bath." But then the guide pauses for a little bit, and she says, "But there is one player who insists on paying for his own bath. It's Tony Gwynn." And she adds, "She says, Mr. Gwynn believes that if he breaks the bath, he should pay for the bath." And that story kind of stayed with me. And after I retired from my law practice, I had more time to write books. I'd written two books, and I was trying to think about my third book, and that story that I just told kind of resonated with me. And, of course, as you recited, uh, Jeff, some of Tony's statistics, so obviously he was a great player. And I did some research, and I realized there had never been a um, full-length biography of Tony Gwynn. So that's kind of how I started on that book.
1: Well, it's a really terrific book. I really enjoyed it. And uh, you know, finding out about Tony's life, some of the things that he's gone through and and whatnot—it was just a fascinating career he had.
5: Yeah, Tony, you've recited some of his baseball statistics. Uh, he was really, I think, an incredible person. I mean, I, I call him at one point in a book an other-centered person. He would think a lot about other people uh, and and what they were thinking about things. He just had that ability to not only think about himself but try to think about. What was going on around him and so as you saw in the book i i do tell some stories about
2: that scott you brought up a great point i just wanted to get and i want to talk about that i want to talk about tony's upbringing and what he was doing when he was training as a kid to become this major leaguer but the bat he had a special bat that eventually broke What what did he call that bat nine something what was that yeah, it's the nine grains of
5: pain. The bat had nine grains in it, and I'm not an expert on bats, but apparently that's fewer grains than the normal bat. And it was kind of it was it, because of that, it was harder, a little bit harder wood.
2: But it's funny because it broke, which bats tend to do, and he didn't have another one of that nine grains of pain.
5: No, he didn't. But Tony's always had about a hundred bats around. So, yeah, a you know, hundred bats. Could find another
2: one. <laughs> wow, that's and he paid for them. He paid for his bats, which is unbelievable. And he had a hundred bats. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's amazing. But you also you talked about him and his his charitable. He was an extremely giving person. He and his wife Alicia were both extremely charitable. Let's. I guess we're we're forwarding, but let's talk about some of his uh, charitable pursuits,
5: Tony. Uh, I mean, and you see it more and more. I think with athletes, professional athletes, to they make more money. They have foundation. It, Tony is not totally unique, but he was very much committed to that. Uh, he and his wife are especially interested in abused children. And so there was a center in, in uh, San Diego that specialized in that. There were great contributors to that, great believers in, the, in that society's mission. But where Tony does stand out a little bit is that, as you probably read, they, they mentored uh, children that, that were abused, brought them into the house, had them live with them, uh, would pay for family funerals, pay for the education. Uh, so they kind of went beyond the pale a little bit compared to what many people do.
1: Yeah, you know, it was funny. I look around a lot on Twitter or X, whatever it's called today. And today there was a, a thing came on today about Tony Gwynn. And I was, oh, this is interesting. It said that Tony Gwynn, he struck out in the 90s, from 1990 to 1999, 188 times. Kyle Schwarber struck out 212 times this season. That is unbelievable. I mean, the way Tony Gwynn w- played the game, and it really is a lost art. Uh, let's go back to him starting out in, in baseball. His, you write that his his hero, I guess, growing up was Willie Davis a- as he grew up in Los Angeles.
5: That's right. Yeah, his family was very sports-oriented. Both of his parents were good high school athletes. He had two brothers. They were good athletes. So they, they went out and attended sports events, and they did. They actually lived in Long Beach at this point, so they would drive up and watch uh Los Angeles Dodgers games and uh, Tony uh, he's kind of an intellectual guy uh, analytical as some of his other family members were certainly his father and and his mother and his brothers were also but uh, he would watch uh, Willie Davis prepare before a game and he just liked the way Davis carried himself and uh, as Tony Lotus uh, later said he said uh, Davis was aggressive but under control and uh, that's one of the reasons Davis became his hero. He was also, uh, Tony was African-American, Davis was African-American, but also they were both left-handed hitters. So there are a number of reasons why Davis was his childhood hero.
1: And Willie Davis was not no schlub either, so that's for sure. <laughs> he was a no, pre- pretty good player.
5: <laughs> yeah, he made a
1: good choice. He did. He did. And he, he decided to go to uh, going to college. He picked San Diego State, although he had a couple of, I guess, scholarships from uh, TCU or Cal State Fullerton. But he went to San Diego State because they let him play basketball. Uh, actually, basketball was his first uh, first uh, sport, right?
5: Absolutely. That was his first love. And In fact, uh, as I, I put in the book, at one point in, in high school, he wanted to quit baseball because his baseball, high school baseball team was absolutely horrible. But his uh, mother convinced him to stay in baseball. And uh, she said to him, you never know, it might be something to fall back on. But in any event, going on to college, Tony's being recruited. And uh, he insists on playing both sports. He wants to play both baseball and basketball. He's an excellent point guard in basketball. And the only school that tried to recruit him that would let him play both sports was San Diego State. So that's why he ended up going there.
2: But even when he went to San Diego State... And they told him that he could play both. They tried to persuade him so that he would not. They definitely wanted him to just focus on basketball.
5: That's right, Len. Yeah, after his first season, he's getting ready. Baseball season was after basketball season. It starts in February, college baseball. Anyway, he's getting ready to play. And I said, no, we don't want you to play. And as as I noted, one of the reasons, I think, is that they were changing to a stronger conference. They were in a conference no longer exist, as, like a lot of conferences these days, right? But there's the Pacific Coast Athletic Association. They were moving to the the WAC, which is the Western Athletic Conference, a stronger conference. So I think the the basketball coaches and the athletic director wanted him to concentrate on basketball so they could be ready for the tougher competition. So his freshman year, he did not play college baseball.
2: When he was a kid, or maybe not a kid kid, but – he uh, broke his arm in football, right? And that—that's correct. And he decided football was not for him.
5: That's right. Yeah, actually, uh, his dad was a uh, coach of a of a of a pal team, I think it was. Uh, his dad played high school football; he's quarterback. And uh, they had this—you uh, guys have probably heard it—but it's the dummy drill, <laughs> and the guys are running into each other full speed and. Tony winched when he saw that. And then he played some sandlot football. And like you said, when he broke his arm, he decided that was the end of football for him.
2: But it just shows how great an athlete he was. Basketball, football, baseball. I mean, he really he and, and he wasn't he wasn't really tall for basketball. But you just get the feeling that he would have been even as a basketball player, something about him. He would have been a great player.
5: He he had a great sense, uh, he had great eyesight, like a lot of world-class athletes do. But uh, he had a great anticipation, like a lot of good point guards do in basketball. You know, seeing things before you you think you would be there. And that's why he was a good point guard. But the same thing, that skill translated into baseball. So one of the things Tony would always say is the most important thing when you're facing a pitcher is to not look at his throwing arm, but focus on his release point. And he just had that great vision. I think Jeff mentioned earlier about his strikeout record, incredible lack of strikeout. And I think one of the reasons was he was better than most players at figuring out which pitch was coming, which is obviously harder and harder to do over the years as pitchers get more and more pitchers in their repertoire.
1: He was drafted in the third round by San Diego Padres, and it was... Great, a great evaluator of talent, Jack McKeon, who saw him play in, at at San Diego State, and he was lucky. I guess he was uh, he was there in the third round to go to San Diego.
5: Yeah, and uh, kind of amplifying on that point, a lot of scouts didn't know a lot about Tony because he played basketball, which would go a week or two in the baseball season. So if you're a scout and you're trying to look at it, you know San Diego State, for example, which did have some pretty good players that ended up playing pro ball maybe you go in the first week and you didn't even know tony gwynn played for the team the other problem he had as i get into but he, he wasn't really good at defense in college he did not have a good throwing arm that was one of the reasons he wasn't he was drafted in the third round as you mentioned jeff but uh he wasn't somebody who's was going to go in the first round
1: no, but, but you, you mentioned his throwing arm. He really improved that, though, in, in, during his during his career. I mean, he was able to he's uh, in assists and Gold Gloves. I mean, that was fantastic.
5: Yeah, Tony worked very hard at it, and uh, he took a lot of pride in it. And uh, he was a very hard worker. And so, I, I do tell the story after after his uh, first minor league season, uh, the Padres sent uh, Coach Clyde McCullough, who was a former Major League player, he was. He was a coach with the Padres at that point. We're talking about 1981. He worked relentlessly with Tony on his throwing arm. trying to. So he would push Tony out at the outfield wall and have him make throws, long throws to third base and things like that, to try to get him to uh, improve the strength of his arm. And uh, even in the offseason, the first several years of his major league career, he would work a lot at San Diego State trying to improve his throwing arm. And uh, as you mentioned, Jeff, he eventually got five gold gloves because yes. of that.
1: <laughs> yes. Could you tell a story? I I, I love stories where uh, the the call up to the major leagues and uh, you have a pretty good one on Tony Gwynn. Would you be able to uh, let, let us audience know what yeah, that story it, it is
5: a great story? So, uh, Tony, uh, this is in uh, July of 1982. He's playing triple A ball for Hawaii, which is the triple um, A team at that point for the Padres. So. The night before, they had played a game, and Tony had ignored the sign from the third-base coach to stop. And he he tried to score, and he got thrown out of home plate uh, in the ninth inning, and the team lost the game because of that. He was the last out of the game. So he gets a call, uh, I think it's July 19th, he gets a call from his manager. His name was Doug Vader, who, as you guys know, was a former major leaguer, but apparently Vader was a guy that liked to have fun, you know, and he's kind of a character. So anyway, he calls Tony into his office and Tony's expecting to really get it for ignoring that sign at third base. And Raider decides, I'm going to do exactly what he expects. So he spends about five minutes just giving it to him for ignoring that sign. And then he just nonchalantly says, oh, by the way, you're being called up to the Padres. (laughs) So that's how he got called up.
2: Talked about uh, how his... He improved his throwing Till I mean, he was a perennial gold glover. But also, he worked diligently on his hitting. And he didn't like the fact that the Padres did not have a indoor batting cage. That was one issue he had. He is the reason why they ended up putting one in. But he also didn't like the fact that hitting practice, when you took into account all the players and the amount of time he figured out It only gave you like 10 minutes or something of of hitting. He would often go to another facility in the evenings, late at night, after games or whatever, and he would work on his hitting.
5: That's true. Yeah, actually. uh, And I don't know if he was, you know, exactly got to this point of view from reading Ted Williams book, written in 1970, The Science of Hitting. But Williams emphasized in his book, Practice, 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 talking about hitting And uh, But he points out in his book, and actually, this is something I follow baseball all my life. This is something I never thought about. But it's a great point. He says, hitting practice, you got a lot of, maybe 20 guys that want to take hitting practice. Pitcher's only going to pitch to you 10 or 15 minutes. That takes up a lot of time. And you only have so much time in the game, uh, in the day, then the game starts. So uh, Tony realized that. And, And he was also the same as Ted had this. He was a perfectionist. Uh, very much like Ted Williams. And so, as you mentioned, uh, there, were, there was a, a school in San Diego that he eventually became a part owner of. Tony liked to joke that it was his office, and he would go there and practice.
2: We are talking to Scott Kingdon. He has written the book, Tony Gwynn, The Baseball Life of Mr. Padre. I'm going to give you a compliment, Scott. Tony Gwynn, uh, unfortunately, passed away in uh 2014, I believe. Right. That's correct. Yes. And and I'm going to ask you, I'm going to follow up with in a second on this. Obviously, you know, he passed away in 2014. You've written this fantastic book. I'm going to say that if Tony Gwynn was living, he would approve of the book. And as a matter of fact, he would say to you, you want to help me write my autobiography. I think that that's how good your book is.
5: I really appreciate that. Well, I I tried to capture his personality.
2: Yeah. And And I think uh, you did.
5: It's it's in various parts of the book. It's not just about baseball.
2: But exactly. You're right. But so that that brings me to my other question, which is obviously Tony Gwynn wasn't alive, but there are other people that were part of his life including his wife. I'm just wondering when you were doing this book and, and researching this book, if you had the opportunity to speak to anyone close to him.
5: I did not speak to anyone close to him actually. Um I really wanted the research to be as objective as possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess I, I just felt like, you know, I, I was influenced by um a historian, her name was Barbara Tuchman. didn't write about sports. (laughs) But uh, she was a historian. She wrote a book in 1982. It's called Practicing History. I really felt that she had it about right. What she says about writing history is you need to write it as much as possible as people knew it at that time, instead of in a book saying, you know, 10 years later, they realized such and such. And I really believe that's the way to do it. So I was very lucky with Tony Gwynn in that there's a huge amount of material because of the years that he lived
4: mm-hmm. that
5: you can find that, that described his life. He also wrote three books. They, was, they were not autobiographical, but they right. provided information. And with all these sources that you can do with online searching, not to mention the fact that, as you know, there's a baseball reference website that describes every single bat of a player's career, it doesn't get any better than that, so I was really focused on writing the history as it was at that time. I would have probably interviewed some of his family members if there were gaps in the story, but after I did my research, I realized it's all there, the story is there, and uh, I I tried to shy, I did do some interviews, but I tried to shy away from, oh, I remember 15 years ago, because Mm -hmm. memories can be a problem. right? I will say this. I, I hope to reach out to, to uh, Tony Gwynn, Jr. Uh, as you guys might know, he, he works with the Padres. I think he's a commentator on some of the game. So anyway, I hope to I talk think he, to him at some yeah, point. I think
2: he'd like to speak to you because you you portrayed his father uh, in, in a wonderful light. But I, I think that Tony Gwynn, you know, besides the baseball career, was just a, a very good person. Yeah, I was talking to Jeff before. Albert Pujols, I was equating Tony Gwynn to Albert Pujols in the respect that if Albert Pujols had stayed with the Cardinals and he had not gone to the Angels for more money and he had stayed, he could have been like the ultimate, probably the number two Cardinal of all time. Maybe people would argue number one, but he left. But Tony Gwynn did not. He stayed. He loved being in San Diego. He cared more about his family being comfortable there, and he didn't follow the money, and he's forever known as Mr. Padre.
5: Yeah, I agree with you, by the way, about Albert Pujols, uh, I think that might have been right. You know, Tony saw the value in that and family and staying in one place. In fact, Tony was pretty unique, not only in his baseball career, playing all 20 of his major league seasons in San Diego, he actually played his entire athletic life. In San Diego, it's even more or in that area, more unique than that. And uh, he was already a well-known, accomplished athlete before his major league career because he played on a high school basketball team in Long Beach that won a state championship. It was really a good team, one of probably the best team in California that year. He also, you know, played both basketball and baseball for San Diego State, so he he was all there the whole time.
1: And even after his baseball uh, career, he was a coach at San Diego State. So uh yeah,
5: that's kind he, of an interesting uh, thing, isn't it? It and, certainly uh, is. It certainly is. And
1: also, you know, since we're talking about him playing all his time in San Diego, the Major League Baseball Players Association wasn't too uh, thrilled with him by taking less money by to staying in San Diego. I mean, of course, they want to uh, chase every last dollar, but you know, San Diego is, is not such a terrible place to stay, is it?
5: <laughs> no, yeah, San, uh, Tony would definitely say that. He said, who who would want to leave San Diego? But, uh, you know, Tony full, fully well knew the trade-off between the money and, and the stability for himself and his family, and he liked the trade-off. He liked being in San Diego, and, and so he stayed there his whole career, and as you mentioned, he went on to coach uh, the baseball team at San Diego State, which, by the way, wasn't wasn't a picnic it wasn't no. like they were a the leading college baseball program in the country at that point
1: exactly exactly uh you know we want to talk about his first major league hit it was against the Phillies and there was uh, some guy at first base who greeted him saying nice hit okay
5: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is a great story isn't it Pete Rose, yeah. is, at that point he's no longer with the reds he's he's, he's playing for the Phillies and he's the first baseman so tony's playing his first game which we talked earlier about his uh, you know, being in San Diego, Tony Gwynn's first game was actually kind of a big deal in San Diego because of his previous sports exploits in the city. So 40,000 people show up for his first game. Uh, this is July 20th, 1982. So Tony makes an out uh, his, his first three at bats. His fourth at bat It's kind of a high scoring game. Comes up his fourth at bat, he hits a double to, to right center, I think it is, but it's the center field. Rose is trailing the play at second base. He notices that they asked for the ball to go out of play. So Rose, you know, he's a long time major league. He knows something's up. And also on the scoreboard, is a big sign that says Tony Gwynn's first major league hit. We don't really know which it was or maybe both that Rose knows what has happened. So he says, uh, he says to Tony, he says, hey, kid, I didn't know that was your first hit. And then he walks over and shakes Tony's hand. And that picture is on the you know local papers the next day. But that's mm-hmm. only part of the story. So then Tony comes up again, his fifth at bat, and he hits a single. And he gets to first base, and Rose at this point is trying to chase Cobb. And, in fact, early in the game, he had not hit 3,800. So he's still about 300 away from Cobb. He, but he, he looks over at Tony at first base and he says, hey, what are you trying to do, kid? Catch me in one day? And Tony just starts laughing. So it's a pretty good story.
1: It, it certainly is. And and Tony Quinn also revolutionized the sport by using the uh, video now. They called him Captain Video.
5: He really did. And that's probably something that's not well known, I think, nationally about Tony's career. But when he was a kid, he, he got a, a transistor radio and he liked to play with it, try to record songs and so forth. And I think that's, you know, he had a, an affinity for technology so his second season is 1983 and, and he's in a slump he's trying to figure out what's going on he's in St. Louis and he calls his wife Alyssa and he says Alyssa why don't you take my bath and by this point I guess you know the Padres games are on local television so she starts doing that and uh he comes back home and and reviews his his, his bath sees that his timing's a little bit off sees what's wrong and it goes on a shortly thereafter a 25 game hitting streak but so he starts taping all of these bats, and he starts putting together this extensive tape library. Even when he goes on the road, he's carrying his bag with all these tapes in it, and people are thinking he's a little bit out of his mind. But as it turns out, and he's not the only one, but he was certainly one of the leaders of uh, videotaping in a bass because it really makes a change in what you can do and analyzing what's wrong with a bat swing. swing. It used to be people try to guess they'd have theories, but with video, you can play it back, you can slow motion. So eventually, he puts together this massive library of his at bats. And, and whenever he gets in trouble, he goes in there and looks at him, tries to correct what's wrong. Captain you. Video, I'm sorry, threw <laughs> that in there. But anyway.
2: One of the things that Jeff and I, when we have good baseball books, and this we've already established, yours uh, qualifies. Um, when we read these books, the tidbits that we get out of them. And here's one that I, I would be surprised. I, I want to see if Jeff, sometimes Jeff and I will like call each other or text each other. Oh, did you know so-and-so, you know, with these tidbits, but this one I didn't. And I'm wondering if Jeff knew this. And and I'm wondering also, Scott, if you knew this before you researched the book in 96, Tony Gwynn fell short by four plate appearances he had 498. The requirement was 502. I did not know, and I'm going to ask you to tell us, that this was something that could be done. So, because Tony Gwynn still won the batting title, even though he was short in plate appearances. Scott, you got to tell us about that.
5: Well, the answer to answer the first part of your question, I, I did not know about the rule either before I researched the book. But it's, uh, apparently at that point, I don't know if it still is, but it was, there's a provision in Rule Nine of the Baseball Rulebook that says if you fall short of the required plate appearances to qualify for the batting title, they will recalculate your batting average, assuming that you made outs on all of the appearances you were short of, of the required minimum. They did that, and they still had a high enough batting average to win the title. So they went the title, but then on the other side of the coin, I just gave him the original batting average, the official batting average. So go figure. But yeah, I, I don't
2: think that rule's ever been used before or since. They gave him an O for 4. They figured, they calculated in an O for 4, which knowing Tony Gwynn that season, I, I don't think he would have had an O for 4. But let's say they gave him an O for 4. He still wins the batting title, but it brings his average down. But you're right. The average that they show for him and if you look in stats, is the average without the O for 4? It's crazy. It is crazy, but uh, at
5: least they thought of it. You know, give them credit for that. Somebody thought of it and put it in the rule. I yeah. don't know when it was first there. but Jeff, did, uh, he, did you know that rule?
1: Uh, uh, no, I did not know that rule. But I'm, I'm wondering if the guy who placed second, was he uh, right behind Tony Gwynn or was there a... Uh enough room. I said, oh, you know, he deserves it anyway.
5: Yeah, I remember it was Ellis book that was second, he was a few points behind, you uh-huh. know, like four to six or something like that. I, I don't okay. remember the exact number, but it wasn't way behind. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: But that is that is just, I, I saw that that was a tidbit. Another thing was that when he, you kept referring to, this this is an interesting number, 5.5. It's throughout the book. It's Tony's career. Why is 5.5 so special with Tony Gwynn?
5: Well, you got a number, the numbers for the players on the field. So the, uh, the shortstop is number six. The third baseman is number five. So the gap between uh, third and short is sometimes referred to as the 5.5 hole, you know, halfway mathematically between five and six. Tony was a left-handed hitter, but he could hit the off-fields. And he apparently got quite a few hits getting hits through that 5.5 five hole. In fact, that was kind of his signature place to get a hit. Now, he sprayed it all over, but that he did get quite a few hits. I don't know the percentage through the 5.5 hole.
4: Yeah. yeah.
1: Turning a little bit serious, uh, he had a good friend on our team, uh, Alan Wiggins, who had a, a drug problem. But, but so did Tony. He was addicted to a legal drug, as you call it, and it was uh, chewing tobacco, which, which really uh, hurt his life. Could you talk about that?
5: Yeah, he, be- he becomes addicted, probably. At least starts using chewing tobacco, probably, in his early college years, at least regularly. And he usually says his whole life, he gets cancer three times, not the first time until 2010. But he, even before then, he had a couple times where something was removed, a growth from his white right cheek. So was it caused by chewing tap- tobacco as cancer that eventually killed him? Probably, you know, because... The place where the cancer was, it was called parotid cancer, which is a gland that secretes saliva into your mouth. The cancer was right where he typically held his uh, chewing tobacco. So it was an unfortunate habit. I mean, Tony was very much against drug use in baseball, was fairly vocal about it. But mm-hmm. um, it wasn't a legal drug, but he, he, he used it his whole yeah. life, his whole professional career.
1: And his good friend on the team, Alan Wiggins, actually had a, a an illegal drug problem as well. And he, like you said, he was would, would, he was vocal for drug testing, which didn't happen until uh, obviously until after the steroid era. But having said that, he also went through with some troubles with his teammates, which I I was very surprised to tell you the truth, Scott, his with, with Clark, Jack Clark Jack Clark calling yeah. him selfish. I, I I found that hard to believe.
5: Well, yeah, that's a true story. So uh, yeah. this is the 1990 season, and uh, the Padres were starting to get better. They've had a lot of bad seasons over the years, but they had a pretty good season in 1999. I mean, excuse me, excuse me, 1989. So they're coming into the 1990 season. They're feeling like they've got a shot at making, uh, you know, winning the National League West. But they're not playing that well, which is always kind of a background, maybe, to how these things blow up, but. What happens is Mike Paglarulo. I I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, but uh, he was a third baseman that had come over to uh, to play with the Padres from the Yankees. And uh, he gives an interview to a New York newspaper and he says, well, there's there's one player on this team. He's selfish. All he cares about is getting his hits. He doesn't care if we win or lose. So that starts to percolate. It gets into the San Diego papers. And eventually, a few days later, Gary Templeton, who's shortstop for the Padres He's a team captain, he calls a meeting before they played the a match in New York. This is on May 24th, 1990, And uh, you know, they, the players really have it out. The meeting lasts a little bit less than an hour or so. You mentioned Jack Clark, so Clark's a fairly imposing figure. He he takes a Coke can, reportedly, and throws it against the wall, and the Coke just splattered in, you know, 15 different directions. But He says, the problem with this team is we have two selfish players. And he named a pitcher by the name of Eric Shaw. And then he says, Tony Gwynn. The knock on Gwynn, according to some of the folks that were complaining, was that he he would uh, sacrifice bunt too often to save his batting average. And that uh, when a player, which Wiggins often did, he was a great base stealer. But when somebody took off the second base, instead of taking the pitch to protect the runner, he would swing at it and try to hit it. The hole there's left between first and second base. They had a bit of a row and it upset Tony a lot because, uh, again, we're going back to Tony's personality, but Tony's a person that prided himself on getting along with everybody. He, he, and Wiggins is a good example. Wiggins was something of a controversial figure on the team, but Tony always got along great with Wiggins. He stayed friends with him the rest of Wiggins' life, even after he was out of baseball. But in any event, that really shook Tony up to, to find that, uh, you know, that this problem, uh, dissension was on the team uh, because of that. So it's just one of those things that happened. Uh, uh, but there is an interesting statistic. I, I You know, I couldn't have done this on my own, but somebody did some research and found out that Tony, the rest of his career, very rarely did a sacrifice punch. So
4: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
5: who knows? You know what happened there. Yeah. But uh, that was one of the things that happened during his baseball
2: career. Scott, another tidbit that uh, so a recently retired, he announced his reti- he hasn't played uh, in over a year, but he announced his retirement. And he was Tony's player at San Diego State, where he was an incredible uh, pitcher. And that's Steven Strasburg, who was uh, he He credits Tony Gwynn for a lot of his success in his career, and he loved Tony Gwynn.
5: He even referred to Tony Gwynn as his second father, or like mm-hmm. a second father. And uh, his mother was a great Tony Gwynn fan too. There's a quote in the book you probably saw, it. she said, Muhammad Ali is the greatest, Tony Gwynn is the second greatest. But uh, Strasburg was considered at the time maybe the greatest college pitcher of all time. He had an incredible strikeout. She has one game his junior year where he strikes out 23 batters. So that that gets a lot of national attention. Tony knew a lot about fame as a Hall, former Hall of Famer. Uh, well, not former, but a Hall of Famer. And so he helped Strasburg get through that transition, especially Strasburg last season where the press is everywhere. There's a focus on how many strikeouts he's going to get every game. And so, uh, and one thing Tony did was that, he knew Strasburg was going to make a lot of money in the in the major league, and he was very careful with Strasburg's arm and uh, not over pitching him. And I I can't remember exactly, but I think Strasburg only completed like two or three games the whole season. He pitched uh, twelve, he won all twelve of them, but only three were complete games. Tony would usually take him out in the, maybe the sixth inning or the seventh inning, again trying to protect Strasburg's
2: arm. Tony took a big salary, you know, reduction to be a coach, you you know, he wasn't doing it for the money because he, he signed a three-year contract for a hundred thousand a year. And then he signed another one for the same, not even a raise, a hundred thousand a year. And even though in 1997, uh, he, there were 75 players that were making more money than him it didn't. So money did was not a motivation for him, obviously. And uh, at San Diego State, it, it wasn't a motivation for him either.
5: I think he saw himself as a teacher, like a lot of coaches do, and and he enjoyed doing that, trying to teach and uh, mentor his players. One of the, I, I refer, as you might have seen, at one point in a book, to the Tony Gwynn gospel, and there's, uh, you know, work hard. Uh, do the right thing. Be professional in what you do, and he would. He took a lot of pride, I think, in, in trying to help players uh, mature into men. And obviously, uh, only a small percentage of them become professional ballplayers. So that was one of the things he loved doing. And, and like you said, he took a big salary cut. I think his last season he made six million. So he goes from six million to one hundred thousand.
2: That's
5: why to cut.
2: <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm surprised his wife let him do it. But, geez, wait a minute, we, we can't live on that.
1: <laughs> you know, what I was surprised that he grew up in California, played all those years in San Diego, but he wintered in Indianapolis. Which you know, Len's parents say snowboard; they go down to Florida to <laughs> go to the warmth. He's not. He's gone from San Diego to the
5: Winter in Indianapolis. Yeah, the joke was that he he and his uh, family were the only ones in the United States that summered in San Diego and wintered in Indianapolis. <laughs> and you know what? I This is bad. I was living in Indiana during that period of time. I, I was a lawyer in Fort Wayne, which is about 100 miles north of India. I didn't know he had a home in Indianapolis until I researched his book, but uh, as you all saw, the reason he did that is he wanted some anonymity. He was, as we talked about, Mr. Padre, so he was really something very similar to Ernie Banks in Chicago, you know, Mr. Cove. He couldn't get around San Diego without being recognized, but in Indianapolis, nobody knew who he was for the most part.
1: And he'd be at the Pacers game, at the Colts game, and, you know, people just left him alone, like I said, because they didn't know who he was.
2: I I
5: I mean, he he was a person that loved to talk to people, but he he was also a person that kind of liked being private. He was both of those people. And so the private side is why he went to Indianapolis. He could be a regular person. He'd go to stores and shop. Nobody bothered him for the most part. Didn't know who he was, as you mentioned.
2: Yeah, Scott, I spoke Uh, uh, spoke to someone today who is in indiana and i said you know i said do you you know are you a baseball fan whatever he knew very well who tony gwynn was and i said well he lived he was he lived in uh indiana he says oh he was a hoosier i said well he he's he's mr padre he's san diego but in the winter he was there he liked shoveling snow apparently you put in the book
5: well Apparently he did, yeah. Uh, at least he enjoyed, you know, being able to do something like that without, as we mentioned, being recognized. I don't know if anybody likes shoveling snow. I haven't met the person that <laughs> who does, but, you
1: know. You know, also him and Alicia, his wife, they they forced several dozen children, which, you know, give him credit. I mean, he had a couple of children on his own and then take in these underprivileged kids from broken homes. That's, that's quite a thing to do.
5: It really is. It's amazing. And when he passed away, a lot of those children came through his funeral. That really says a lot about who he was, I think.
2: 54 years old, yep. way too young. And uh, he was contributing. The one thing, though, that you note a couple of times you mentioned the book, he filed for bankruptcy. When it came to money, I don't know that they managed their money so well, because they had an issue with the IRS. They filed for bankruptcy. I don't really think money was of concern to him. And I think because of that, he kind of didn't really watch it or, you know, was a little crazy with it.
5: Yeah, a couple of points on that. I mean, Tony was a workaholic, but his work was not managing his money, right? Baseball, (laughs) he was out in the community a a lot, uh, giving speeches to different civic organizations, but the other thing too is tony i don't have this in the book but it was once quoted as saying that you know what i'd just be happy if i had a two-bedroom apartment and cable tv so i could watch sports and you know i think that that was part of who he was i mean he would also say hey i like money as much as anyone but it was not his prime motivation by any means
1: right the book is called Tony Gwynn, The Baseball Life of Mr. Padre. We're here with the author Scott Kingdon. Scott, this has been a fantastic conversation. The book is terrific. Also, one, also one last thing about Tony Gwynn. He was in two World Series, 1984 and 1998. And that's a kind of big, school, big swing between appearances in the World Series, but he did it. He did pretty f- fair share. I mean, he did over 300 as he usually does. They didn't lose because of Tony Gwynn. Let's put it that way.
5: Yeah, just a quick point on that. They played two of the best teams of the post-World War II era. The 1984 Tigers, great team. Of course, the 1998 Yankees, possibly the best team of all time. So
2: They they played the wrong
5: teams in the World Series, for sure.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
5: (laughs)
1: That's for sure.
2: (laughs) But he, he did get to two. He got to two World Series, which is... You know, because people said, well, if you went somewhere else, maybe you could win more, make more money. But he liked to stay there. And there are plenty of players that don't get to any World Series. So he did get to two, went to playoffs, all-star games. He he did quite well for himself.
1: Oh, speaking of Len, thank you. Speaking about the all-star game, there was a couple of games that he played the whole game. They don't do that anymore.
5: No, they have. I don't know how many players do they have on their roster now. You guys remember? <laughs> like 35 or something?
2: Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Is that what it is? I don't know. The all-star game is, you know, a lot, well, of, well, a lot of players.
1: Well, Scott, this has been a fascinating book. I mean, Tony Gwynn, definitely one of my favorite players, obviously one of the best of all time being in the hall of fame. And we thank you for writing this book anywhere. you want, do you want to plug any social media or, or how to get the book besides Amazon?
5: Well, uh, my publisher is McFarlane and company publishing. You can get it on their uh, Twitter page or um their Facebook page and, and the other uh you know typical sites where you can order a book like Barnes and Noble and so forth. So I don't know if I'm supposed to advertise to other <laughs> well, people. We, but anyway.
1: We want you to sell a book because it's a terrific book. I mean anybody's interested in baseball and, and and great stars and Tony Quinn is you know right up there. So uh, definitely get this book. Scott, thank you very much for joining us on baseball and BBQ.
5: Thank you. It's a great conversation. I appreciate the knowledgeable conversation that you guys had. So it was great.
2: Thank Thank you. you very much, Scott. Thank you very much. Scott, you've done justice to a great career. Tony Gwynn gone way too soon. Way too soon. Absolutely. Just unbelievable. The guy the way he could handle that bat, just what a player. Really great player. One of the best.
1: Absolutely. And Len, before we uh, sign off, I just want to give a shout out. Since it is the giving season coming quickly, which I can't believe it's already November, I want everybody to go to OperationBBQRelief.org. And if you can, give them a few dollars. It's a tremendous, tremendous organization that helps people when there is disaster in, in the area, be it tornado, hurricane, floods, whatever. They're there. And it's serving hot meals to people. So please go to OperationBBQRelief.org.
2: And if you can, please donate. Yeah. You said it, Jeff. This show is brought to you by Bet Online. It is where the game starts. We gave a lot of show. So we're not starting. We are ending. And Jeff, how do we end the show? With the poet. Shel Krakowski.
1: And the musician. Dave Dresser. And the song. Baseball always brings you home. And we'll see you next time on episode 211.